Well, everybody, welcome, welcome, and welcome again to the art and science of complex sales. I'm here with a man that likely needs introduction, but we're going to introduce him anyways. Andy Paul, welcome to the program. <laughs> Paul, thanks for having me. <laughs> You're very welcome. For those of you that don't know, Andy is one of the best sales authors in the past 15 years, uh, has some awesome books, started with Zero Time Selling, Amp Up Your Sales, and his recent hit, which is Sell Without Selling Out. And he's also a podcast host, mm-hmm. you know, very similar to me, uh, podcast host, but yeah. uh, his, but uh, you've been doing it for a lot longer than I have. So sales enablement with Andy Paul. So yeah, 1,125 episodes or something. Yeah. Dang. I'm only, I'm only, uh, I don't know, 1,115 short, something like that, but we're, <laughs> <laughs> well, you too. Stick with it for a few years. Yeah. We'll yeah, get there. Yeah. We'll, seven, seven plus years. So that's awesome. I didn't realize it a bit that long. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So uh, we were going to go on script, but we're going to go completely off. What, sure. what has been your favorite moment from sales podcasting? Oh, God. I don't know if I have a favorite moment. Uh, I, wish I, I wish I could say that. <laughs> After a while, they start blending in a little bit. Okay. <laughs> favorite of, impact. Favorite impact you've made in terms of sale podcasting. Well, I think when people reach out and say, look, yeah, I listen to it as often as I can. And it's had an influence on how I sell or it's had influence on how I manage. Early on, I think this first or second year, get this LinkedIn message from a CRO who said, yeah, I've read your books and I, I listen to podcasts and basically you know, manage my team based on, on what you do, what you say. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's gratifying. There are a lot of people who find value in what the information that, that's been shared on the show. Yeah, because I bring on smart people, hopefully, uh, smart people, uh, 1,125 episodes with repeats probably eight, 900 you know, distinct guests. And everybody's got something to share. I mean, I don't always agree with everybody that comes on the show, which I don't expect. And some people are great about defending their thesis and, and things that are important to them. Sometimes we get into really you know, honest, frank conversations about that. Because I see that as sort of part of my role is to push back against things that I think are, yeah, you know, become sort of traditional or you know, status quo or just old fashioned in the extreme in sales. And surprisingly, a lot of what passes for quote unquote modern selling these days is, is very old fashioned and just trying to move the ball forward, right? Trying to help the profession and the fact that people get value from it is that extremely gratifying and makes it worth doing. Well, you do a great job at it. And I'm going to bring it back to one of the reasons we do this one, which is we dive into sales, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things you said there, old-fashioned versus new-fashioned, what, what is sales? Like to you, I ask this to everybody that's on <laughs> it, what is sales? Yeah, so I phrase it a little bit different. It's what is selling, mm-hmm. right? As, as I like to use the verb, because what we do is we sell, right? Mm-hmm. Sales is sort of a profession, but we're in, we're sellers, and what we do is selling. And what I write about this in the latest book, Sell Without Selling Out, is, is draw that distinction between the way so many sellers are, are trained as sort of this fundamentally persuasion-based approach to sales, right? My job as a seller, people are led to believe my job as a seller is to go out and persuade somebody to buy my product. And I think that's completely wrong. 
right? I don't think our job is to persuade the buyer. I think our job is to, our job as sellers is to listen to our buyers, understand the things that are most important to them in terms of the problems they face and the outcomes they want to achieve by addressing those problems, and then help them get that. Right. So it's it's sales as selling as a human first service-based approach to helping people solve a problem and achieve a specific outcome. If you, you go with the perspective that your job is to persuade somebody to buy your product, well, it's all about you, right? The, the starting position is you as a seller, what you need from them, as opposed to helping them determine what's important to them and then helping them get that. And I just found over the course of my career, you know, it's a long career at this point selling hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of, of products and services that, yeah, treat somebody like a human being and understand that you as the human at the end of the day are really the, the key differentiator in the mind of the buyer between buying from one company and buying from another company. Increasingly so, this is the case. If you have that in mind and you have that service approach, then yeah, you do what I call selling in as opposed to selling out. So what is, uh, I'll last under a couple of words there. Sure. When you say treat someone else like a human, right? What does that entail? Like, Well, they're not a target, right? We talk about, we sell to someone. That's the lingo we use. Well, we're going to sell this to them as if somehow they're resisting and that we have to sort of force ourselves on them. And I think selling is a collaborative act, something we do with the buyer. Again, if you go in with this idea that your job is to persuade them to buy your product, then you've set this up as adversarial from the beginning, which is, hey, I need something from you. And if my job is to persuade you to buy my product or service, I don't have a huge incentive to really dig down deep and really understand you know, the things that are most critical to you because it doesn't really matter. My job is still to persuade you to buy my product. But if you take the other approach, which is, yeah, my job is to listen, really understand what's, what's really driving you. What are the real priorities? What are the things that are most important? Because I found over the years, every opportunity I've worked on and that I've won or lost is there's always one thing that's more important than all the others. And it's our job as sellers to find out what that is and connect it to the value that we bring from our products and our services as a company to help the buyer achieve a certain outcome. And that starts, by I said, is from a service mentality, which is... Hey, they're a human that has a problem. I'm a human that potentially can help. I'm not a process. I'm not a tactic. I'm not a methodology. I'm just here to help. But can humans, I mean, so tell me about the relationship then between that human there to help and the process methodology, the tactic, like where does that intertwine? Well, it's a good question, right? Because it depends on sort of the, the method and the tactic and so on. It's really useful for all of us to understand various methodologies, various approaches, because there's so many people that have preceded us that have had experiences that are valuable that we can learn from. But it's also important we take those and incorporate those into our own style of selling. I believe that there's you know, 2 million salespeople in the world. There's 2 million distinct sales methodologies. And that's the way it should be, because what you want to do is take these various influences that you, you know, you've come across or that's in learning from a client or learning from a book or a sales training course or whatever, it's really incumbent upon you to become the best version of you, right? Because you're going to be the best of how you're best can serve your buyers. And so that requires that you go out and you expose yourself to a wide variety of, of influences, 
pick and choose the ones that are going to help you achieve and help you help your buyers achieve what they want, and then make that your own. That's what I really talk about in Sell Without Selling Out is the subtitle is a guide to success on your own terms. And I think one of the real failings we've had in B2B sales, especially in the last 20 years, is that we've become much more process-oriented, detailed process. That's why that's due to the fact we can a lot more transparency into what sellers are doing because the technology is available, whether it's call recordings or CRM systems that didn't exist you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago. And there's a lot of value in that data. But in the hands of managers who don't want to really dig down and get to know the people that are working for them and understand, just like you do with your client, your customer, as a manager, your job is to listen to the people that work for you, understand the things that are most important to them uh, in terms of the problems and challenges they have and the outcomes they want to achieve with their lives. Your job is to manage to help them get that. It's no different than the relationship between a seller and a customer. And we've really strayed from that in many cases. So now it's all about, well, are you doing the requisite number of activities, number of calls and outreaches? And you know, we're tracking the data, but I think in the process, we've really lost sight of the individual. And yeah, you know, we've seen data that supports that in terms of uh, Uncrushed last year had a survey they released of B2B sellers. I forget how many thousands participated, but yeah, you know, huge incidents of mental health issues and depression and anxiety. And yeah, we're in a very performance oriented profession, but it's, we're, we're exacerbating these potential issues, just the way we manage people. So what do I want to do is say, look, it's, you have permission to be yourself. In fact, you have the obligation really to be yourself in sales is not try to be someone else. And, but again, great trend in the last 10, 15 years in sales is let's use the technologies that exist to make everybody like this standard we have, right? Every, you know, if the number one person in your team is Mike, is let's have everybody sell like Mike and just the wrong way to go about it. Not everybody can be Mike. Only Mike can be Mike. Take some things from Mike and integrate into who you are and become the best version of Paul. That's what you want. Let me see if I can, uh, Kind of sorry, recap. Sorry. No, no, it's great. Let's see if I can recap the integration. No, I think it's awesome. It's awesome. You got to, and you're passionate about it and it works. But I think what I heard from that is when I talk about process or technology, it's the integration of that into you being the best you can be, not necessarily the manipulation of that for you to be somebody else. Like you have yeah, to don't sell. Don't be a slave to it, yeah. right? I mean, I'm the sum of all the influences I've come across in my life. I've taken you know, numerous training courses read, I mean, seriously, just in the last seven years with the podcast, I've probably read more than 500 sales books. Yeah, you know, probably more than anybody else out there has written. I read the books. If the guest comes on the show and they've written a book, I read their book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can't help but be influenced by that. You learn things, you know, listen to podcasts. But again, over decades, you know, I remember my first job out in the field, had the cassette deck, putting in the Zig Ziglar tape. Yeah, I'm sure I've taken bits and pieces from all of that, but I'm not a spin seller. I'm not a Sandler seller. I'm not a, you know, a Ziggler, whatever. Um, a mix of those things that's, that have worked for me and that I continue to build upon. So tell me the importance of, of coaching in that, because that seems to be an absolute critical piece of this. When you talked about sales managers and sales mm-hmm. coaching, tell me a little bit more. 
well, we've got this problem in sales today. You read the surveys about sales coaching, sort of paraphrasing, but in general, what the data says is 80% of managers say that they coach their sellers at least once a week. Then it's 80% of sellers report receiving no coaching at all. <laughs> and so there's there's this huge, and this is, I'm being serious about that. I mean, it's that distinct where the manager report, yeah, I'm doing it. The sellers say, I'm not getting it. Mm-hmm. So we have this huge perception gap that exists from research that's been done on various sources. This number that always sort of comes out is, you know, A, the single most important thing you can do to uplift sales performance is effective coaching, which I agree with 100%. And I think the number that's sort of associated with that is like a 19% uplift through effective, consistent coaching. But where managers these days, frontline managers, feel torn oftentimes is they feel this obligation to prioritize reporting upwards in the chain as opposed to helping develop the people that work for them. And given the sort of increasing sort of process orientation and sales is, again, I believe, looking at the data and also experience where the companies is you see managers sort of look like sellers are sort of these interchangeable cogs in a machine, right? Is It's really the process in their minds. They're saying the process is what's paramount. If I can just find the right person to plug into it and execute that process, everything's going to be great. But that's not the case, right? As we know from data that you know, average win rates in B2B sales on modest size transactions like 100K or higher, it's 17%. There's this data that came out a year ago survey of 5,500 companies. You can't say sales is working if that's the average uh, win rate. So something's falling down along the way. And I think it's, yeah, we can sort of apportion responsibility in various ways, but certainly frontline managers, I think, have the largest share of that responsibility in terms of failure to achieve at higher levels. Responsibility, I don't say it's blame, because I think frontline managers... Generally, just like sellers in general, you know, unless you're working in a really big company, you just don't get the training. You don't get the coaching yourself that you need from your manager, whether it's a CEO or a CRO or whatever. And so sort of this failure up and down the chain to invest sufficiently in the frontline managers who are the people that make things happen. I mean, if you if you read, hopefully people don't think this is political, but like if you read accounts about what's happening in the war in Ukraine and how poorly the Russian forces are performing, is they contrast it with the United States and more modern militaries, where the reason the army works is they've got this core of low-level, you know, the sergeants basically, right? Middle management, who are incredibly well trained and given responsibilities and authority. And that's absent apparently in the Russian army. Well, that's the equivalent of our frontline managers and sales. And we're not investing enough in them. And yeah, I go as extreme as to make the case that if we take all the money we invest on sales training in the United States, which is, well, LinkedIn had a, a number in their annual sales report, about $15 billion each year, of which I had hazard a guess, probably 90, 95% of that's spent on training individual sellers, I say flip the balance, spend 90% of that annual budget on training your frontline managers. And we'd have a dramatically different outcome than what we have today. We'd have people that are more well-managed, more well-developed, more well-motivated, perhaps inspired and motivated by you know, effective leadership. 
So that's just a huge gap. We need to invest in our frontline managers and, and our, even our middle management because their focus is all on sort of the activity and the process and not on the people. One of the key things that has been a theme across uh, a lot of these, a lot of the podcasts that I'm, I'm doing a lot, and just frankly, a lot of conversations that I'm having in sales is the fact that it's not just like, it's not just sales training that people are needing. It's, it's truly self-leadership and leadership training to drive impact, right? And coaching training, like how do we, how can I be an effective coach? If I can lead myself, how do I help others lead themselves? Mm-hmm. And it really ties to this this human element that you're you're talking to. That it, it is, it's uh, while process is wonderful. I and I I love a sales process. I love a good sales methodology. Like I, I'm a geek that way. I, I think it's fantastic. But I've always told people that they need to be able to know it enough that they can forget it and do it in their sleep because that's how they just you know you, you, that's why you learn a script so you can forget it so you internalize the information right right. But back to this idea of. Being able to have leaders that then can help you drive, it's not even drive results, help people walk with the customers towards results is absolutely critical in that. I think that's a big gap. I think people see leadership training towards the executives, like an executive needs a leadership training. No, it's it's how do you lead yourself? How do you lead your team? How do you have the right habits? How do you coach? Anyhow, I'm on a rant now. No, no, but you're absolutely right. Well, I think... Yeah, I I think one of the major problems that exist with sort of the way we're set up with how we we envision management these days is is I draw the analogy to helicopter parents. And I think to some larger extent, we sort of infantilize sellers because we micromanage them to death, right? And just as you would with a helicopter parent. And, you know, we want to track every activity and everything they do and, you know, the number of calls they make and so on. And you see this in the expectations, you know, this is, you know, it reads things on LinkedIn or wherever. And it's like somebody's saying, well, you know, here's, here's the key to setting five meetings by making a hundred dials as opposed to saying, well, you need to make set five meetings. If you can do that in five calls, wonderful, right? That's where we want to get you to go. <laughs> That's fantastic, but that's not the way people look at it, right? It's like, hey, we need this level of activity and we need to micromanage you to death. And we need to set expectations for sellers as leaders, inspire them, build trust with them, show them the direction you want to go, but then give them the freedom to go execute that according to the way that makes best sense for them. Instead of saying, look, we've got one way to do this and we've you know, turned this into a mechanized assembly line process, hey, you can make the argument that, hey, maybe at top of funnel, that makes sense. You want to be more like that. But unfortunately, you see that applied even once opportunities enter the pipeline. And that's not how people are going to perform at their best. And so to take a sort of extend on point you made is I think sales leadership starts with the individual contributor, Right. If I'm, if I am out dealing with an opportunity, dealing with a prospect, ultimately what I'm doing is I'm trying to build trust and inspire them to take action with me. And that's what leaders do. Uh, mm-hmm. Stephen M.R. Covey just yeah, came out with his uh, latest book, which is uh, Trust and Inspire, Inspire. Yeah, Trust and Inspire uh, about leadership. It starts with the individuals. And if 
people become adept doing that and understanding from a mindset perspective, that's fundamentally your role as a salesperson is to help is in a leadership role with your prospects. Then you'll take that with you when you get promoted to management. If you want to, if you want to take that step into management, because you'll see us, wow, this is how I work with my prospects to help them achieve something that's important to them. I can take that same mindset into managing a group of sellers and saying, yeah, this is how I work with them, build trust, inspire them through my own actions, through my own words, to take actions that will help them achieve what they want to achieve. So let's dive into a topic that I know that you're really passionate about because this is this is something that is, I personally believe, like as you're hmm. defining sales this way, that a human is the one that does this, right? Hmm. Um, so you have this you have this idea that you've taught talked to me a couple times about and and your book, Sell Without Selling Out, defines a lot of this, but it's this idea of this human-centric, but also machine-proof, right? Selling. Right. What? Tell me about those thoughts. Yeah. Well, I mean, human-first selling is, is based on a couple of concepts. One is that you as the human are the first line of differentiation and the most important line of differentiation in the mind of the buyer when they make their decision. So we know from data and this... So first came to light, I think, or first publicized back at the Challenger sale in 2011, I think based on research that came from CEB slash Gartner, that in the B2B world, is that 53% of the buyer's decision, is, purchase decision, is based upon their experience with the individual seller. And there's further research with Gartner about trust. And, and when buyers talk about trust, the most important trust was not with the vendor company is with the seller that was representing the vendor. They trusted the seller more than the company they worked for. And there's been more recent research done by a company in Australia that does extensive win-loss analyses uh, on enterprise buying and selling. And they had summarized their findings over, as a result, all these hundreds and thousands of interviews with buyers, about nine reasons why you win big deals, nine reasons why you lose big deals. And none of those reasons had to do with the product, the functionality, the features, the pricing. Well, pricing was mentioned once. It was your price was too cheap. That was a negative. But never the price was too expensive. All the factors had to do with these human elements, right? The, how Building the connection with the buyer, building trust, um, building emotional connections, being able to tell a story. And yet we continue to sort of train our sellers on tactics and product and methodologies and so on. Not that that stuff's unimportant, but after a while, as I like to say, it's it's like pouring water into a full cup. People are full. They're not getting anything from it. The cup just overflows as you add more training to it. So we're, we're training, taking humans and training them how to be sellers. What we're not doing is taking these sellers and training how to be human, you know, how to connect with another person, right? How to build that, that fundamental connection relationship with a buyer that opens the door to building credibility and trust. Now, that's an innate human behavior. And we think, gosh, everybody, sh everybody can do that, right? No, no. Why do we assume everybody can do that? But it just gets ignored in training. We've got a whole, you know, now two generations of near digital natives or digital natives and near digital natives who have come into the workforce, who spent their entire lives growing up, fundamentally connecting with people through asynchronous messaging, right? And that's social media and texting and so on. As you and I would have done if we were, you know, teenagers in the last twenty years. That's different than getting on a phone and talking to somebody. And so, 
there's nothing wrong with people that haven't had that experience of, of building these connections in a synchronous mode, but they need to be you know, taught. They need to be given exposure to, to ways to do that. Something, again, that they can integrate in their personal style that aligns with their personal strengths so they can have these types of conversations. Yet, we just make the assumption they know how to do that. I think something that's really important there is also this this word permission. Like I I remember one coaching episode I had with uh, a guy a bit back. His performance just I, I'm not I don't take any credit for it. All I said was you need to be you. Like you, mm-hmm. you you're a really fun guy. You're you're awesome to be around. I love laughing and joking with you. It's great to go to the go and get a drink. But you know how much of that comes through in a sales call? None. Like absolutely yeah. zero. Because it was it was got to say the right thing, got to be professional, got to f- have the right words, got to try to persuade. I said, you know all that. You know all of it backwards and forwards. Now forget it and just go be go be you. And, and this is within and again, because I'm a I'm a I do love process. I do love that. I but it's it's meant to empower, it's meant to embolden, it's meant to enable. Like mm-hmm. you can have a great football team. A great football team has a process. You know, we just had the Super Bowl a bit ago, but uh, has a, they have a process for calling plays. But you got to know that really darn well, and then you just go audible. You go audible yeah, well, as you. Yeah, there's you see this. I'm a huge soccer fan and yeah. and basketball fan, and a word you oftentimes hear. I mean, Steve. Kerr uses it all the time about the Golden State Warriors, uh, other soccer coaches, is they want players to bring their personality to their play. Yeah, you know the basics. You, you know what our yeah. plays are. You know, you know the formations we run or you know, you know the, the tactics we're employing, but I, you're not bringing your personality to the game. And that's that's why they brought you onto the team. Not just you know your talent, what you might call your talent, your potential. Part of that is your personality. And that's, to your point, precisely. It's exactly true in selling as well as, sure, great. You know the product, you know the customer, you know our methods that we're using, you know our playbooks. Yeah, bring yourself to the game because that's going to become a differentiator. Right? I look at my career, spent, you know, the, the part of my career was you know, building teams or as an individual contributor and then building sales teams. I was not a conventional salesperson, you know, introvert. I was, I was in the selling really complex technical products. I was a history major in college, you know, reasonably smart person. I knew the products enough as a lay person, but I was not a, an expert at it. But yeah, when I look back on the big deals I won, sure, they were a team effort for sure. Couldn't have won without the team, but also it was, it was me, right? And I know the buyer ultimately was buying me because I was the point person. And that was just a matter of bringing myself to the game. And I, yeah, I have a very specific way to do it just because it fits my personality. And I let the, let the personality show. I had managed to sort of encourage me to do that early in, early in my career and gave me that, I said, that sort of permission, as you talked about, to be myself because, hey, that is a strength ultimately at the end of the day. Well, I think in that, that uh, everything we're talking about here directly ties into this this thesis you've been developing about essentially machine proof selling right so if i wouldn't i wouldn't be on a sales podcast today if i didn't mention chat gpt and and that type of stuff right i mean chat gpt this chat gpt that but, sure. but you know that human element 
is the machine proof. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, the technology is amazing. I love, I've been playing with ChatGPT. <laughs> I think it's incredible. And what we're going to see, whether it's you know, ChatGPT 4 that's coming with, with uh, Bing or you know, whatever Google's got their sleeve or even rumors now of Amazon. Fantastic stuff. But it takes you so far, right? It doesn't take you all the way. And there are things that machines just, ways machines just won't be able to act like we do. And I was like, I wrote about this a couple weeks ago on LinkedIn. I said, hey, I'm machine proof. There are things that I can do that machines will never be able to fully replicate. Parts of it, they will. But, and it's down these human things, ability to connect, creativity, uh, you know, sparks of inspiration, taking disparate data points and synthesizing them into a question or into a potential solution, you know, out of whole cloth. Because if it hasn't happened before, AI is based on everything that's happened in the past, right? And pattern matching, it's not going to come up with this on its own. And I love the book I cited often called Humans Are Underrated by Jeff Colvin. And the subtitle being what top achievers know that machines never will. And as he writes, is based on his research, is that you know, the primary skill that of top achievers or attribute, if you will, of top achievers in the 21st century are those people who learn how to become more intensely human, become more human, not less. You know, the future of selling is more human, not less human, right? Because sure, there's, you'll see the, and we've seen this already over the last 10, 15, 20 years is the range of products that are being sold completely on a self-service basis you know, has expanded quite a bit. That's going to continue to happen. But you know, products with any sort of complexity, products with risk associated with them, products perhaps of a certain cost point, you know, price point, still going to require humans and the machine experience for the buyer to a certain point in in that process, they're all going to be the same, right? My bot's going to be just like your bot (laughs) pretty much. And then what becomes that differentiator? Well, it's that, that human element that you bring to it. You know, the human element to help the buyer better understand the problem, you know, by asking different and better questions to help them better understand, to understand why the buyer, and this I think is really the critical point. There's research about use of AI-driven decision-assist systems, if you will, in the medical world. And they've actually been used in the medical world probably for longer than most other places. And what they find is there's sort of this curve after which patients are stop trusting the machine, if you will. And part of it has to do with you know, the seriousness of the problem they're, they're dealing with is they want to talk to a human, right? But part of what's driving that is even in things that, that are relatively common is that humans don't believe or humans always believe that their situation is unique, right? I may have the same disease that 2 million other people in the world have, but yeah, no one's experiencing it just like me, right? Mm-hmm. And when you go to the doctor, you want to make sure they understand just how you feel unique. You know, this is unique to you, how you feel. Well, this is true in selling and business as well. 
I think over 40 plus years of selling that hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equipment and services. Even though I was selling in industries that I yeah, sold many deals in, I learned, this is one of the secrets, I believe, to my success over time was I learned that pretty early on that, oh, this company may look just like everybody else them selling to, but they think they're different. And you have to acknowledge the fact that they think they're unique. And when you do that, suddenly you're in a realm that machines can't touch because you've made that connection with that person. And you're saying, look, I hear you. I understand you, right? I'm making you feel understood because I'm acknowledging that you feel you're unique. And when you do that, you're giving value to the words and beliefs of the people you're dealing with. Now, now think about this. this is, to me, this is really powerful. Is you're giving value to the things that are important to them. And if you don't acknowledge that, then you're not. So you're like every other seller. Oh, you're just like, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you talk to a buyer and you say, you know, you ask a question. They say, well, we've got, you know, XYZ problem. You say, oh, yeah. Yeah, we've been dealing with a lot of companies. I think we sold like 10 companies just like yours in the last. What you just said was you're trained as a seller to give that as a point of social proof. What you just told the buyer was, you're not unique. You're just like everybody else. I'm not here to listen to you and really understand you. Here are training sellers. Oh, no. Refer to all these other companies we use that we just like them. That's not what they want to hear. They want to hear that you understand that they're unique and they're different, even if it's just in the small degree. Well, that's, that's a human difference. Mm-hmm. Machine's not going to do that. Machine's just going to assume you're like everybody else. Because this, this is yeah, it's based on the data. Look, it's looking. The machine's looking at it. And so it's these small things that really set you apart and enable you to win a higher fraction of your opportunities if you take the time to say, okay, what in the mind of the buyer makes them unique? And this is, this is last point, is this, yeah. this is the definition of acumen. Acumen is not understanding why and how one situation is just like every other situation you come across. Your acumen is understanding why it's different. I'm taking a note on that. <laughs> I think everybody should take a note on that. I'm picturing in my head, right? And I, I'm going to use the math term wrong because, you know, I graduated high school. <laughs> I think it's degradation to the mean or it's coming back to the mean. I think it's regression you know, to the mean. Regression to the mean. There you go. There you go. Well, um, Regression to the mean, it seems like there's there's always going to be a natural regression to the mean if you are looking at it from it's like something I've dealt with before, right? And a machine can see that, but there's always you'll only give the best of all the average answers that have been out there for for all yeah. history instead of instead of saying, well, what makes you uniquely, uniquely different? Yeah. Let me let's really dig into that. In well, I was saying that you as a seller, that's what you're saying to the buyers. Let's really dig mm-hmm. into it. And that's what I write about and sell without selling out. This is, you know, there's four pillars of what I call selling in, which are this opposite of selling out, which is the conventional, traditional salesy behavior. Instead, we focus on these innate human attributes of connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity to, again, listen to our buyers, understand the things that are most important to them, and then help them get that. And when you do that, again, you set yourself apart 
from your competitors, you set yourself apart from you know more mechanized selling experiences. You know, all this this talk that's come out that's become really prominent in the last three years, especially during the course of the pandemic. You know, seeing Gartner, seeing from all sorts of analyst firms, I think Forrester maybe was one of the last ones, or McKinsey maybe. Buyers want a self-service experience, which it's just so <laughs> the, the analysis is so superficial. It's stunning coming from these firms. What they want is they want somebody, somebody to help them make a good decision. Yes. And yes. if the alternative is I have to deal with Mr. Super Salesy coming out and just trying to persuade me to buy their product without really reaching this level of understanding, then hell yeah, I'll do self-service. <laughs> I got a picture of a phone tree. I got a picture of, for some reason, I'm not going to blast any cell phone carriers that I've had to call in to support for, I don't want to press one. I don't want to press two. I don't want to be prodded. I just want you on the phone and I want you to help me. Please. Please. I can't. And yeah, there's this fundamental misunderstanding of what buyers go through to make a decision. And you know, we have no shortage of these expensive consultants who come in and write these, you know, help you craft these complex, elaborate selling processes that supposedly, you know, mirror a buying process. And it's like really missing the point, right? This is buyers fundamentally go through three, <laughs> three stages, if you will. It's very simple. And if sellers can serve pictures on mind, it really help them. They go through three stages. There's a what stage, a how stage, and a who stage. So try and do what stage. What is the problem I'm trying to solve? And what are the outcomes I can achieve by solving the problem, by addressing the problem? Now, in the early part of their buying journey, that's consuming the biggest share of their time and attention is trying to understand what they can do, what the problem is. This is what they need sellers to help them with, right? This is our job as sellers, as I said before, is to listen and understand what we're trying to help them define and understand the problem to find the outcomes they can achieve. But what happens? We train sellers to go pitch, right? Go pitch, go pitch your product. Well, you're pitching before you even understand what the story is, right? Before the buyer even understands what, what their problem is. So we've got this at the beginning, in the vast majority of cases, with this huge misalignment between the seller and the buyer. Because the buyer, I'm trying to make sense of what's sort of going on, what I think my problem is. And I have an idea, obviously, but yeah, I could use your help to, in your experience, to more you know, finely define that. And I could use your help within your experience to help me understand what I might possibly achieve by addressing my problem. But you're in here just pitching your product at me. It's like, how's that help me? Doesn't help me at all. And I learned pretty early on in my career. I was like, oh, okay. This is actually like a sale within the sale. If I could win the what stage, meaning we come out of the what stage with the buyer pretty much aligned with me on a vision of what they can achieve by addressing their problem. And I start help them through, you know, you call it the challenge of sale or whatever, help them better understand the problem and the breadth and scope of the problem they're trying to solve. Oh, I walked into the house stage in the lead, mm-hmm. right? Because in the buyer's mind, 
I sort of started designing myself into their mental solution for the problem. So a specific win. I wanted to win that. I wanted to win the what stage. Well, then you get to the how stage. Well, if the buyer is sort of using you as the template for what they want to achieve, they're sort of putting everything in the frame of your solution and they're out looking. Well, oh, I looked at this other vendor. Oh, you can't do that thing. You can't help me get to where I want to go in this dimension. Oh, well, I'm not sure I look at that as positively as I might have before. So then you look at, well, here's the second sale within the sale is the how. I want to win the how. I want to get myself firmly defined into, into the buyer's plans. You know, look at it like sort of analogous to, you know, if you're selling a chip that's going to be designed into a larger board design. Well, you have vendors that are trying to sell their chips into, you know, cell phones, right? Mm-hmm. I want to get my chip designed into that. Well, I want to get my solution designed into the buyer's specification. Because when they get to the end of the house stage, yeah, your buyer develops this you know, final set of requirements. Based on what we really need, based on our conversations with vendors, I'm going to come up with this final set of requirements at the end of the house stage. And then I'm going to go make a decision about who is going to help me achieve what I want to achieve. Well, again, I learned if I get to the end of the house stage and the buyer's requirement basically looks like my product or my service, my odds of winning the business pretty high. So you want to think strategically about, really, there's actually there's almost four stages, but there's, <laughs> there's distinct wins you have to have. The first stage, which is not a, dis- a distinct stage, but I call it the YU stage, which is why does the buyer want to talk to you in the first place, right? Your first interactions with them, they're going to make a decision about you. Are you worth my time and attention or you're not? Mm-hmm. If you're not worth my time and attention, you're not going to get it. So you don't even get a chance to sort of compete on the, the what stage. So you think about it from a seller, there are three wins Three sales within a sale, basically, you want to win before you get to the point where they make the decision about who you are. And you, if you're deliberate about trying to win it and look at it that way, again, it makes life a lot easier, especially in more complex sales, because now you're completely aligned with the buyer. Mm-hmm. It's not about discovering qualification, blah, 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 which have no meaning to the buyer at all. It's as a sales manager, you could look at and say, okay, well, where are we with the buyer? Well, they're in the what stage. Where are we? Great. So how are we helping them with the what stage? Well, you're basically doing discovery and qualification in that stage. Well, yeah, this is what we've come up with so far. This is what we really understand is the most important thing. We think we're good. This is a perspective that's aligned with how the buyer is buying. Simple. What, how, who? And we sort of just assume that as sellers, oftentimes, that the who is the most important decision they're making. It's nah, sort of the least important. Third order, third order decision. Yeah, we have uh, this. This aligns so well with with a lot of the the foundational methodologies and that type of stuff that we're using. Like, I think I hear that, and I think I think sales methodology. That's what I think. It's so because it's. It's not a process. It's not you have to do this, 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 this exactly here, exactly here. But it is a, it's a fundamental methodology that puts the vision of, the vision of the customer first, right? Mm-hmm. And how you get to that, right? There's tactics and but how you get to that is through connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity. So yeah. those, four, those those four pillars. So, um, oh, yeah, it's the heart. It's the heart of, heart of sales success are these human attributes. Yeah, you need to have product knowledge. You want to have customer knowledge. It's not these things are unimportant. Mm-hmm. But 
if you can sort of look at yourself in the mirror and think, yeah, there's really sort of, there's two parts to me. One part is the part that's I'll call what I know. And the other part is who I am. Mm -hmm. And lots of people can be the same as you in terms of what you know, but the distinction and the way you differentiate yourself isn't who you are with the buyer. And I said, we just don't spend enough time focusing on that. So it's just part of the reason why I wrote this book and part of the reason why we you know, have this cohort-based course we call Selling School, Andy Paul Selling School, where we're teaching yeah, the methods behind selling in is because, as I said before, yeah, we, we train, we do a great job training humans how to be sellers. Yeah, we don't do a very good job at all of training sellers how to be human. And that's the edge. That's what top achievers know that machines never will, which is that the more of a human you are, the way that that's received by the buyer, the greater your odds of success. Well, this has been a masterclass, Andy. I truly, truly appreciate it. Uh, how oh, thanks people, for having me. Yeah, it's been awesome. It's been awesome. I have one more thought. I got to sure, sure, go throw it out go there. Ahead. Well, it's that you just said who I am and what I know, right? When people get that confused is when I see... when when they they equate those to be the same thing is mm-hmm. a lot of times when I see sellers having a, a massive problem. Um, meaning they're, when their identity is only in what they know, uh, they can't bring the who they are to the party. And the who they are is what allows them to have a joke or have a laugh or have a, you know, be comfortable, oh, yeah. with, be comfortable with a CEO, right? You're uh, you, every, or, you have every much as value as the CEO just by sitting here, right? Exactly. Not, you know, it's, uh, or, but to a point as extend, what you said is, is also it's the being human that enables you to take a risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I write about this in the book. Yeah. My friend, Charlie Green, who was one of the co-authors of the trusted advisor and yeah, one of the world's leading experts on trust it talks about this idea is, is one way to, to build trust is to do, he calls it, uh, bring a risky gift, B-A-R-G is the acronym, meaning that you're able to come to the buyer and feel comfortable enough to take a risk, to provide a point of view to them that, that you think they may not accept or to challenge them with a, a concept that you think is sort of, you know, one that may disturb the, the, the process that you're in right now, the motion, the momentum you have, but you know, it's better in the long run. And yeah, that's who you are. I'm feeling comfortable with who you are in that environment is to say, yeah, I know this has value. You know, it, here's another thing. If you got a minute is, is yeah. that, again, I think the analyst firms just don't, don't understand when they talk about, Buyers want the self-service. And we said, we framed it before. They do if the alternative is you know, the pitchy salesy person. When you think about why do, why do customers want to talk to salespeople in the first place? And there's, again, science behind this. And there was a, I always butcher the guy's name. I think his name is Mark Gronvetter or Gronvetter. He was a sociologist back in the early 70s and he developed this concept and through research, they called weak ties and strong ties. And there are people we have strong ties with and people we have weak ties with. And what he found is in studying organizations is that 
Sure, the people you work with day to day and day in and out, you develop these strong ties. The downside is, though, that you all know the same crap, right? You know all the same information. So he called it, what you know is you know redundant information. Well, when you're trying to make a substantive or substantial change in your business, right? You're trying to you're invest in a new service, a new piece of software, something that's going to you know, change what you're doing. It doesn't really help you if you're all sitting here talking to yourselves and you don't know what you don't know. You're not willing to go ask somebody or have somebody come in and challenge you or provide a new perspective. And so self-aware organizations know that they need people with whom they have weak ties to come in and ask them the questions they don't think to ask themselves or don't know to ask themselves, provide the perspectives they don't have the experience to understand. So it's not that your buyers want to talk to salespeople. I mean, I think probably in the recorded history of humankind, no buyers ever wanted to talk to a salesperson, right? I don't think my buyers, my customers never woke up and said, God, I sure hope Andy calls me today. But they need to talk to you in order to do a good job, right? Your buyers want to do a good job. They want to make a, a good decision. Um, and so they need your help to be able to gather and make sense of the information that will enable them to do that. So you have to be that person that adds enough value is perceived to add enough value, perceived to have the buyer's interest at heart to be put in that position to by the buyer to, to help them. I'm going to get the concept wrong again, I'm sure, but, uh, it's old effect and, and Matt, had some yeah, conversations Dixon, with yeah. him. Yeah, but he he talks about radical candor, right? Mm-hmm. And so radical candor is is very along those lines, which is that that ability to to add value, to challenge it when when you need to challenge, to you know, to to be able to actually understand your worth and bring it. You're not a you're not a doormat. You you do serve. You are a leader. You are a servant. But you know, to be able to to be have that radical candor and talk with somebody like that and say, I do think this is best, right? I don't think this mm-hmm. is best and is, is just absolutely. And I think that is, if I get back to your medical analogy, right? It, it's so critical for that, for a doctor to be able to do that really well with somebody. Right. And it's the same thing with a salesperson is to be able to, I mean, they train doctors on it, right. <laughs> is to be well, able to more or less successfully. Yeah. I mean, yes, my wife, exactly. But my wife's but, a professor at a medical school and yeah, I mean, not all doctors come out with good bedside manner, but they do yeah. teach them. And you hope it's, them. yeah. And it's true with sellers as well as, yeah, you want sellers to have that good bedside manner. Again, not all of them do, but those who do, it, you tend to be rewarded for it. And again, it's not about being a doormat. This is the thing that yep. you know, came out in the Challenger sale. I think Challenger sort of did a disservice. And I've given Brent Adamson a hard time a couple of times on my show about this is that, you know, they talk about the relational seller. Oh, the relational seller is bad. And there have been people who have taken that and run with that and said, oh, relationships are unimportant in sales because relational sellers. It's like, no, they're very specific about a certain type of seller that just what I call the unrestrained giver. Yes. I'm just going to give, yes. give, 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 because I don't really want to engage you in conversation because you may say no. Right. And, or, you know, you may ask me a question I don't know the answer to. So I'm just going to give, 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 give. 
Yeah, that's not the point. I mean, it's in order to really build credibility and trust, you need to have a relationship with the buyer. And, you know, it requires that, yeah, sometimes you're going to take risks. Sometimes you're going to be blunt with them. I mean, that's, that's Charlie Green's point of bring a risky gift. I mean, this is risky to, you know, be that candid with someone, but the payoff is they know you, they have your, you have their best interests at heart and you earn more trust as a result. So, yeah. So, I mean, again, that's part of being human is, is you have those conversations when it's really important and you operate with somebody else's best interests at heart. You put their interests ahead of yours. You win more frequently. I could go on with you probably for another two hours, three hours. I think we're at a yeah. point already where we have like two, two pods worth of, two pods well, worth of content. So, and there you, there and you go. We didn't even get, we didn't even get started on, uh, on win rates, which I got to have you back and we got to talk about that. Okay. Oh yeah. Let's do that. That you gave us that stat of 17%. I want to, I want to dive heavily with you and, and the impacts of that, but we'll save that for another time. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really important. That's something I'm spending a lot of time writing and talking about this year is, is yeah, we're just, it shouldn't be this low. There's no reason for it to be this low. If you're in sales, your minimum standard should be that you're winning more than you're losing. And if you're not, as I wrote about in a LinkedIn post, the post today is also wrote about my book is if your win rates less, if your win rates less than 50%, that means that in most cases, your buyers are buying from you in spite of you, not because of you. And it's a horrible place to be as a seller. Well, we're going to dive deep on that next time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Andy, last thing, last question. Where do people sure. find you? Where do people find you when they when they want to after listen to this? Yeah, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Probably the easiest uh, LinkedIn, usual preamble, real Andy Paul after the slash. Or you can just email me at andy at andypaul.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andy. And everybody, thank you for sticking with us through this. And it was a masterclass from Andy Paul. On, uh, oh, thank you. And really appreciate it. And we'll sign out from now on the art and science of complex sales. Thank you very much. We'll see you.